0: In 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read three verses this morning, and uh, you would just be amazed. I mean, uh, I kind of look at these things, and especially as I look at 2 Peter chapter 2, and I think to myself, okay, I'm dreading when we get to the third lesson in 2 Peter 2, not because I won't enjoy it, but because it is so, I mean, the, the, the number of verses, and if you were to, to look at this kind of from an exegetical standpoint, I mean, it's probably double the work that any other section is just because of all the words and the research and so forth that you've got to deal with. That having been said, it's shocking how much is in this um, chapter. And in these three verses, I think we could probably spend double the amount of time we have on them. And I'm I'm having to make some decisions on how I want to handle this this morning, and I hope I make the right ones. I want to be a blessing to you today, but let's read these verses. We'll have a word of prayer. And then we'll jump into things, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words." Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the day and for all the things that you have assembled to be a part of this day. We realize that every Lord's day is set apart. We realize that every Lord's day is special, and yet there are elements in today that cause us to rejoice all the more as we celebrate your goodness, as we think about your providence, and think about your hand of favor, and uh, even what you have in store for Community Baptist Church. We're excited about that. But we're also excited about the opportunities that are part of today for us to uh, be in uh, attention and attendance to the word of God and to allow it to penetrate our hearts. And I pray for each of us here this morning because we're just frail human beings and we bring all sorts of liabilities to any time we're in church, whether we're tired, distracted, Uh, have other things on our minds, and those things uh, just play against what you want to do. So we pray that you will give us special grace. We pray that you would give us the ability to be alert and to follow along and to be prayerful about those things that maybe you have as a blessing uh, for us today. And anything that you accomplish, Lord, in any heart here today, in any service, in any Sunday school class or in, in any service, we will give you the praise because we know it all belongs to you and I pray these things in Jesus holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, you can see that we're on lesson number 4 and what I'd like to do this morning is take a few moments I like a road map sometimes. I remember when I was traveling in the latter part of 2018 and most of 2019 doing some work for our Christian school, our State Christian School Association in Pennsylvania. And you know, you get some of these places out in the hinterland and I'll tell you, you better be sure you get the directions on your phone for the next place you're going before you get out on the road. Because once your phone has it, you're safe, right? But if you get out there somewhere and turn it off for some reason, you stopped at sheets or someplace and whatever, and you, if you don't have service, you're not going to get that back. And then you, but I always made the mistake. My wife would ask me, well, didn't you look at the map? And I'd say, no, I clicked on go. I mean, it, it said it had the directions. I saw it had the directions. I, I clicked on go for the fastest route, and I, I didn't zoom out on the thing to really look at how this was going to send me. And folks, I'm telling you what, sometimes I, I thought, if, if I'm not in the middle of a cow pasture, I don't know where I am. This is crazy, these roads that they have me on. Uh, so that sometimes is a mistake. Sometimes it's really good to zoom out again and, and look at the whole. You notice that uh, we have a statement there in the opening where I say we come to chapter 2 and what is arguably the centerpiece of the epistle. So here's where the roadmap comes into play. So if we think about the statement that we're making about 2 Peter, that the Bible is sufficient for faith, and realize that what we have as we go forward, we've looked at chapter 1 now, so that is the faith given. And we won't go back over that ground this morning, but Peter lays that essential groundwork. But you get to chapter two and that is the faith attacked. So now we're really getting into the heart of this matter. The groundwork that was laid in chapter one sort of preparing us for what Peter has to do to expose these people and to alert and warn the church and to alert and warn his, his, uh, shall we say his congregants, the people he's writing this letter to uh, about these false teachers. And so um, when we get to chapter three, we'll have the faith defended And that's all well and good. But I've given you just a little bit of a a further detail about chapter two there, where this is just a way of looking at it. Sometimes I change it myself. I I have sometimes two or three different things, and I choose the one that strikes me best at the time. In fact, truthfully, um, I've reworked this whole section of material for today in in some ways. But um, so in verses one through three, thinking about these false teachers So, he describes their condemnation or their damnation uh, in verses. Well, we have their deception, and then we have their damnation, and finally their deeds. And as I said, look at that. So, verses 10 through 22 to describe their deeds. What do they do in practice? What do they advocate? What are they saying? What are they doing? Um, It's the longest section. And I encourage you to read that. You'll You'll see just from reading it what I'm talking about, about that being so packed. Full of material. And I don't know, we'll, we'll, I'll have to make a decision on that. We, maybe we'll take two lessons. I just haven't figured that out yet. But So, as Peter begins, um, we talk about fair warning. And many, many times it is a good idea to be on guard. Have you ever thought about the fact that, like, now I've never done fencing. When I say fencing, I'm talking about not where you put railroad ties in the ground and boards between them. I'm talking about that, that type of thing. I not only never have done it, I don't intend to ever do it. But I do know this, you get out there and they say on guard. So that means you better take note. It's about to start and this guy's got a thing here, a rapier or whatever those things are they use. And, and I guess you know if you're uh, Patrick Stewart or one of these people you're doing a scene and you have the protective garb on, but still you know you're exposed at a certain point, even if you're not going to get cut, literally cut, you still don't want to lose the match or whatever you call those things. That's what this is about. This is like Peter saying, okay, we've talked about these false teachers a little bit, laid some foundation, laid some groundwork about how you can know your own faith how you get your faith, how you grow your faith, how you're grounded in your faith. But now's the time to really be on guard. So this is a warning. So since I've called this Fair Warnings, what I've done today is I've put together four things, and I've couched them. This is where I kind of reworked this a little bit. I've couched them all as warnings. And so the first one is don't be caught off guard. You might think that we don't need to say that. But God says it, so we must need to hear it. You might say to yourself this morning, well, okay, I mean, I know that there are false teachers out there. Yeah, but look what he says. And this is where it really kind of, he makes this point by referring back to the Old Testament and what was true in the Old Testament. And what does he say? But false prophets also arose among the people and then says, just as, in the same way, There will be false teachers among you. And when we see those words translated among you, that's a good English translation of that, but if you look at it literally, it's even more expressive in terms of making this point. It's actually in you, literally. So what's the problem? The problem is I might expect an attack from without. In fact, that's really the difference between 1 Peter and 2 Peter because in 1 Peter, his concern is suffering, and the attack is from without. Persecution is an attack from without. Not all forms of suffering are, but the, the, the persecution that he's talking about certainly is an outward attack. And many times the church definitely faces outward attacks. But did you know that the devil is often, the devil doesn't have any problem with switching gears. If one strategy doesn't work, he's not limited. And you see the same pattern. I pointed this out once before. You see the same pattern in the book of Acts. If you start off in the early chapters, what do you have in chapter 4? And in, the chapter, in chapter 4, you have these temple Sadducees and officers coming down on Peter, James, and John. And they're saying, didn't we straightly warn you not to teach or preach in this name? And they haul them into the pokey, you know, overnight. And that's where we've heard recently, they prayed, and they prayed for boldness and all that, and the Lord gave them that. Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were given boldness. But, boom, what happens? You get to chapter 5, and what do you have? Ananias and Sapphira. So, on the one hand, you have the devil attacking from without. On the other hand, you have the devil attacking from within. That's what this is all about. Okay, now, using Israel for an example, I want to do something that's in some ways off script. And it... It'll use some time to do this, but I think it may be worth our while. Let's turn to Jeremiah. Do you mind this? I don't have these verses on the screen for you. Let's go to Jeremiah 23 together so that we can see this. So if he's going to say, look, don't be caught off guard because this is not, this is not anything new. It was all in the history of Israel. And it's going to be the same way for you as well in the church. So, I'm going to give you an extended passage and just ask you to follow along. Think about it from the standpoint of what we've just said. All right, look what, this is Jeremiah's heart-rending description of this problem in Jeremiah chapter 23, starting in verse 9. Concerning the prophets, he says there were false prophets, my heart is broken within me, all my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers because the curse of the land the land mourns and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. What's he talking about? All right, verse 11. But prof, both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall, for I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria, so what was Samaria the capital of the northern kingdom? So the prophets of Samaria. What's the point that's being made? The point that's being made is these false prophets didn't come over from Egypt. They didn't come over from Babylon. They were people who would have made the profession that they were speaking in the name of Jehovah. That's the problem. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray but in the prophets of Jerusalem capital of the southern kingdom I have seen a horrible thing they commit adultery and walk in lies they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil all of them have become like Sodom to me Peter mentions Sodom in our text down a little bit later verse 4 or 5 therefore thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets behold I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. Don't worry, no judgment's going to befall you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own hearts, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Talking about people heaping to themselves, teachers having itching ears. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand exactly or clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned to them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. What's Peter saying? It was true in Old Testament Israel, so don't be caught off guard. It will be true in the church, not just from outside the church, from in the church. We'll skip this as you can read that, but so again, the attack is from among you or within. Look at this last thought. Don't expect them to be obvious. Peter says, they're just like Satan. They're devious. They're deceptive. They secretly bring them in. Here's the way he words this, and it's a very interesting and expressive word. When he says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, Do you want to know why a preacher should warn his people? It doesn't have to be every sermon, but I mean that's something you have to do. And do you know why we should do that with conviction and fervency? Because heresy is destructive. All right, I want you to think about an illustration from the shooting world. Even if you don't shoot, this will make a lot of sense to you. So, you read you can also read my track missing the mark, but If you go to the range, let's say in Pennsylvania, this is is like a fall exercise. You're going to go, unless you get really lazy, check the zero on your rifle, be sure you didn't bump it or it hasn't changed. So you go there, you get the rifle properly set where it's solid, you don't have to worry about you as much. In my case, I had one of those Caldwell shooting sleds because after a while I got tired of the (laughs) wham! against my shoulder, and uh, you know, you don't feel it when you're actually pulling the trigger on something that's a good game situation, but just to go out there and shoot, 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 after a while, all right. So, usually, if you've already um, boresighted the thing, you can start at 100 yards, dial it in. Here's my point, though. Um, I would not, I'm a bit perfectionistic, so I'd, I would like mine to be as good as possibly good, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that I'm going to be shooting at something about like that, so if I'm an inch off, eh, I mean, if, if my shots group well and if my shots are maybe an inch off dead center of the bullseye, I can probably call it a day and feel good about it. My point is this. That that particular range lets you shoot at 200 yards or 300 yards. If it's an inch off at 100 yards, what do you think it is off at 200 yards? What do you think it is off at 300 yards? And that's the thing, see, it starts out just like you're used to seeing sometimes on a graph. Something departs from the axis, the vertical axis or the horizontal axis, minutely in the beginning. The further it gets away from it, the broader the spread. And so, we have to develop an appropriate intolerance to things that are just unbiblical. And, and I've tried to word that delicately, an appropriate intolerance. Nothing says for us to be unkind, but at the other, hand, the other the other side of the thing, if you and I are charged with protecting the flock, well, what would you think about a shepherd that took a lackadaisical attitude towards wolves nosing around the outside of the fold? All right, so there's a couple of scriptures. This, I said this word is very expressive. Like, it's the idea of to bring in alongside, but with the whole idea of doing that kind of subtly, secretly. And this was a burden. I mean, this is Paul's burden when he's calling the elders of the Ephesian church to Miletus to give this in, impassioned address to them. And he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Now, look, I don't want you to go around the church today and think, is that a bad guy? That's not what this is about, okay? So don't overreact that way, but on guard. To lead away disciples after them, and this exact word—not the, it's, it's the word root, okay—it's a different form of the word, but it happened in when Paul writes to, to the Galatian Christians, who may very well have been in Peter's audience with this letter. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, these were the Judaizers who kind of slipped in, and you didn't—the distinctions weren't so clear in those days. So, I mean, they came from Jerusalem or whatever; they seemed to have the, the appropriate credentials. But they started teaching that you had to be circumcised to be saved. Paul said, "Did Paul take a charitable? say, I mean, did Paul take a charitable attitude towards that?" Hello, no, he didn't take a charitable attitude towards that. Right? Because you may say, "Well, that's a fairly small thing," but look at where that goes when you get further away—at 100 yards, 200 yards. Now you've introduced more things besides circumcision. And it all then it truly becomes legalism when you are adding to grace requirements in order to be saved. So you ask and elect people with spiritual, the people that you trust have spiritual discernment to sniff some of this stuff out and to warn you about it. Let them do their jobs. Don't be caught off guard. We have to keep moving. I already spent too much time there. Don't be discouraged. Why do I say this? Well, because when you look at what he says at the beginning of verse 2, you would think people wouldn't do this, but what does he say? He says, many will follow. Really? I mean, in the church, many will follow? That's what he says. And, you know, so don't, I mean, yeah, we we need to take the message to heart for here, but we need to think also about churches, so to speak. In other words, Bible-preaching, Bible-professing churches, and so when it says, don't be discouraged, and then he says, many will follow, this word is expressive, too, because if you look at the first two letters, you have a ex a you have a, a preposition that doesn't really have any purpose there except to intensify the meaning, and akalotheo means to follow. So when you make that intensive, what he's really saying is, many will completely follow. Many are just going to buy it hook, line, and sinker. And not only will they do that, but when you, when you consider what these people were saying and doing, now I find this extraordinarily interesting and instructive. This is not me, this is just what I, I think you're seeing here. This is despite the fact that what these false teachers were doing had its beginnings with what they taught about the person and work of Christ, and it was wrong. And I'm going to tell you something right now. If you don't have the person and work of Christ right, this is the whole ball of wax. I mean, you can have a different prophetic interpretation than someone else, and... We can be brothers, we can agree to disagree or whatever, but we're all going to heaven, right? But you can't have a different interpretation about who is Jesus Christ and what was, what was his work and end up in heaven. There are things worth fighting for and there are hills worth dying on. And the person and work of Christ is exactly that. What's so interesting is when you think about the background of false teaching, John had problems with this very thing if we go over to 1 John chapter 2, and I don't have this verse, so I'll read this for you. He says in verse 19 of chapter 2, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they were not all of us. Wow. How do you sniff out these people who weren't genuine? Well, he says in verse 22, Who is, who is a liar, but he that, who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That's the person of Christ. If he's not the divine son of God, he can't save you. I'm just saying. All right, he goes on. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. That's pretty clear, right? Don't have it right on the Son, you you don't have a relationship with God. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Paul, if you read Paul's letters, this was John. If you read Paul's letters... If you read Colossians, you read 1 Timothy, he had problems with this very kind of thing, and Bible teachers have kind of become comfortable with lumping all of this stuff under kind of an umbrella term, because I guess we don't know anything better to call it, but the early ideas of Gnosticism, and I mentioned this to you already, the, the knowledge cult, and, you know, really full-blown Gnosticism didn't happen until the second century, but that doesn't mean some of the ideas weren't floating around, and you see it coming up. And the New Testament writers, the apostles, they, um, all right, what do I mean when I say the person worker of Christ? Well, you notice how Peter phrases this. He says, even denying the master, you notice the word master is capitalized? It's because it's a translation of a word in the original that has a negative connotation in English today. Despotes in Greek is where we get our English word despot. So we don't, you know, we think of people like Nebuchadnezzar was a despot or whatever. Uh, that's usually a negative connotation for us. New Testament times, it could have that flavor, but at the heart, a despot was simply someone who had absolute authority and ownership. And Peter uses this word in chapter 2, verse 18. I think I have it at the bottom there servants, be subject to your masters. So, in that context, he's saying to a servant, because they had slavery in the first century, you know. The person who's your despot, the person who's your master, has absolute authority and control. And I mean, Jesus is Lord. He has absolute authority and control in the universe. Anything less is aberrant. And then it talks about, and this is sort of a thing you have to work on a little bit, but even denying the Lord that bought them, what's that mean? Well, it is likely that that word might be referring to his redemptive work. Um, you see it in a context like this, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you're not your own, you're bought. There's the word that we have in 1 Peter. A lot of the other contexts maybe all of them. There's, there's an argument about this. We'll, we'll stipulate what, what kind of buying we're talking about by mentioning either the blood or a price. I don't know that I can be completely comfortable with buying the argument that since Peter doesn't spell that out here, it doesn't have any reference to redemption. What you have, And that's the work of Christ, right? Redemption is the work of Christ. We have the person of Christ, we have the work of Christ, and what are they doing? They're denying that. How do we interpret denying that and yet say the Lord bought them? I think it has to do with their profession. In other words, He's already told us these people come from among you. So here's, here are people who claim to know Jesus. The devil does his best work. I used to say the devil does his best work in the pulpit on Sunday morning, not here, but a lot of places. Because your guards down and people weren't expecting this. I think it has to do with their profession and I think also it helps us when you look at a verse like 1 Timothy chapter 4. Again, I don't have this verse for you. Because half the time I put this stuff together and then I spend more time with it. Oh, I should have put that. You know, but there's not enough room even in the paper. But let me read this verse to you. So there's a broad sense in which we will say that Jesus is the Savior of all men, but we realize that not all men are saved. Isn't that true? So how do we, how do we work with that? Well, Paul has a way of phrasing that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Let me read that one for you. For to this end do we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people. So in a broad sense, that's true. But then he says, especially those who believe. So there's a sense in which it's broadly so and a sense in which it's specifically so, right? And uh, I don't see too many heads nodding. (laughs) I hope you can... Uh, Following this is, but I think that's kind of what this has to do. It, it has to do with their profession, because I don't think these people are saved that he's talking about here. I think the whole chapter talks about the fact that they're apostates, that God has reserved uh, an appropriate destruction for them. So, because they're off on this, and I really like the comment that Calvin makes on this particular passage. And this goes to my point about. Um, don't be discouraged Calvin says this there is nothing that disturbs the godly there's nothing that disturbs godly minds so much as defection to prevent this destroying of our faith Peter interposes with the timely prediction that this very thing will happen on guard don't let it catch you off guard I hope I'm gonna be able to bring this I'm 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 gonna try to put a face on this in a minute, okay? So, so this is kind of maybe seeming like we're talking about the theoretical right now. I'm hoping I can flush it out for you in a moment. Um, all right, we need to move on, so don't be discouraged. Why we say that? Well, because when you look at this, um, well, I guess I didn't turn these slides forward, so I guess we have our last thought that their lifestyle, their lifestyle, in what sense did they deny him? Well, their lifestyle. You can say all day long that Jesus is your Lord, but you know what? When you're out here doing this stuff that they describe in, he describes in chapter 2, you don't have a valid profession. I can't see your heart, but if you are off on the person of Christ and you're off on your lifestyle, your profession, though I can't see your heart, doesn't have any credibility. There is no biblical basis for you to insist that I accept your profession if your lifestyle is consistently at loggerheads with someone who says that they embrace Jesus as their Savior and Lord. So, I, and in, I think I may have this verse for you. Jesus did say, tell us, this is in the context of false prophets and false teachers. He says, you'll, you'll know them by their fruits. So, you and I are not ultimate judges, right, but we are fruit inspectors. All right, we have to come to the next one. Don't be shocked. Why, do, why does he say that? Well, the particular thing he calls out, or why do I say that? Because I noticed that the particular thing that Peter calls out is their sensuality. What does he say? And many will follow their sensuality. All right, what's that word mean? You know what that word means in English, but I'm going to tell you something. This is a, this is a strong term in the original language that has at the heart of it, excess. So when you plug the moral overtone into it, what you've got is moral or immoral excess. And so the way I've worded that for you here is the word is actually in the plural. So we could, if we wanted to press the literal, we'd say, many will follow their sensualities. That is to say, there's not one particular thing. There's a whole basket of them that they do. And when he gets further into the chapter, he describes this as being like Sodom, verse number 7. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by, here it is, the sensual conduct of the wicked. All right, also we get down to verse um, 18 it is. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. All right, I want to use an illustration because I want this to be relevant. I hesitate to use the word modern, but up to date. Okay, will that work? So, this has to do with moral abandon in multiple iterations. Well, okay, I've been around long enough. Not as long as some of you, but long enough to make this statement. I remember when what they called the sexual revolution was starting. And when I was a teenager, you know what that primarily consisted of? Promiscuity. Big time promiscuity. People that were living together or having intimate relations without the benefit of marriage. And, you know, prior to that, it was certainly not unprecedented to have that happen, but, you know, there was preaching and teaching and so forth more so in those days that, you know, marriage was the context for that kind of thing, and it was widely regarded that that kind of thing, yes, it happens, but it's really not the correct practice. Has that changed since 40 or 50 years ago? In all of that time, this so-called sexual revolution has progressed to the point that here we now have, I'm going to give you as far as I know, today, the full spiel. It'll probably get something added to it tomorrow, but here's the alphabet soup. L, G, B, T, Q, I, A, 2S+, I don't even, I had to look up what some of those stood for. I mean, folks, if you didn't believe in total depravity, all you gotta do is kinda look around and man seems to, the fallen heart of man, Jeremiah tells us, is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked. It has, it seems to have no limit in its capacity to drum up iterations of evil. And so from God's clear pattern of one man, one woman for life, We go to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and a president that thinks we should be teaching kids about that, to queer or questioning, depends on who you are or how you define it, to I, which is supposed to be intersex. I don't know what that is and don't care, really, I mean, I'm not going there. Hey, what's that? Asexual. I don't remember that term coming up since it's biology. I had to take it. Biological science survey. After I'd already had it in high school, I had to take it again in college. So I wasn't smart enough to figure another course that I could get out of it. But, yeah. And let me see here. I've got to read in a little chicken scratch, small handwriting, trying to wedge all this stuff in. Um, yeah, it'll help if I take my glasses off. Oh yeah, 2S, what's that? Two-spirit. And plus is countless ways in which we may self-identify. Well, There's the problem right there. I mean, if you're looking in here for the standard and you get to say what you are, so don't be shocked, Peter says, it's like Sodom. And, of course, it's also true that such behavior has always occasioned the ridicule of people from without. It says the way of truth will be bla because because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Well, if you profess Jesus Christ and then have a lifestyle like that, you know you all you do is put a ding on the a ding on the Lord's reputation and a ding on the truth. So, you know, you used to say, Thinking about ministries, think that three things that will get you in trouble faster than anything else is morals, doctrine, and finances. Most of the problems you hear spring from those areas, moral, doctrine, finances. Most guys stay straight on doctrine, but that's not exclusively true. Morals can be a problem, and once in a while people get involved with finances in a way that they shouldn't be. Any of those will kill you right then and there. And they all, then the minute this happens, well, so-and-so was asked to leave or whatever. And, oh. So that's what he's getting at there. All right, I, I have to move. Don't be taken in. That's the last thing. So now, okay, now he's ripped the face off the thing. I mean, it's just, he's, he lays this bare. He says, you know what? These people, they have ulterior motives. In verse 3, their greed, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Exploit is a very expressive term because it's, The word in the original that we get our English word emporium from, so it's a commercial term. It's somebody who's trading for money and he mentions greed, which is this insatiable desire for more and points out that, okay, lots of times what's really going on, so when you see these people on TV, you kind of wonder what's their their deal here, what's going on. He says, and they entice you with false words, exploit you with false words. Here's another interesting word picture for you, the word that's translated false is plastos, it's where we get the English word plastic, fake. Does that bring it right up to today? Fake words. And they couch it in religious garb. Here's Paul's rendition. I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naïve. Smooth talkers, but they have an ulterior motive. All right, and he says this at the conclusion of this. I, I have to bring this to a conclusion because I have an illustration I want to use. He says, you want to be sure of one thing. Don't, don't misunderstand God's long-suffering. That'll be in chapter 3, but here it's coming out. The sentence that God long ago passed on that type of conduct will be executed. It will come to pass. It is not idle and it's not asleep. And that that word asleep is really interesting. It's you have both words for sleep and the word here, drowsy, in Matthew 25, 5. What that's drowsy, that's people in church. They haven't quite gone totally out yet, but you can kind of see them going. It happens to us all. So, you know, it just, all right, I want to share a burden with you. Um, please understand the spirit in which I do this and also understand that I don't reserve the right to final judgment because I don't see the heart. But I have been very troubled by one of the latest evangelical superstars, so to speak who were known for their profession, their preaching, and then all of a sudden come along and deny the faith. And I'm speaking specifically of Josh Harris. Some of you would know his books. I've used them in pastoral ministry. I mean, he sort of got everyone's attention in the Christian public reading when he wrote his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. You may have heard of that book. Okay. Then he followed up with a book on purity, and I think he's changed the name of that back then, not even a hint it was originally, and I think it's maybe a different title now. But did you, would, it, would it surprise you to know that the man who was the pastor of an evangelical megachurch in Gaithersburg, Maryland, the man who was known as the superstar of evangelical purity now, den- now has left the ministry and denied the faith, and quite the opposite, he's ready to help you out to take his same journey. Because he realizes that he was, all of these strictures were forced upon him. They were other people's ideas from the side, from outside. And now that he's figured out his true self, he'll sell you a course for $275. I'm serious with lessons on how to deconstruct your faith. This is, I can get passionate about this because I know someone right now who has been misled by that, who found themselves in a position of weakness because of problems they were going through in their Christian experience and marriage. And now this guy comes along who's known as the superstar of all this and says, you know, you're fine. You're not fine. I want to read, I'll give you a copy of this article if you ask me for it, I'll send it to you. But this, to me, is one of the best articles that I've read on this, and I only have a couple minutes to give you a taste of it. Actually, yeah, that clock there is almost right. All right, this, this particular article is written by Carl Truman. So <laughs> you read this article, and you just, hey, guy just destroys him. I mean, he does it the right way, but he blows him away. Josh Harris is back in the limelight. He made his name as the author of I Kissed Dating Goodbye and was thereby a key inspiration for the purity movement in American evangelicalism. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Then after a stint as pastor of an evangelical megachurch in Gaithersburg, Maryland, he left the ministry, repudiated the book, and the teaching that had given him his platform and abandoned the faith. From within. Don't be caught off guard, don't be discouraged, don't be shocked, don't be taken in. But this is America, and if you have lemons, you make lemonade. Harris is now back on the stage, peddling his latest venture, a five-part course helping you to handle the damage that purity, culture, and religious legalism, as promoted by the earlier Harris, may have done to your life. You know, I really feel like I've been damaged. (laughs) I'm glad for the people who have kicked me in the seat of the pants along the way and told me what I needed to hear. Well, you know, we got to quit. Nathan asked me to stop a little bit early. Let me see if I can give you another choice, little pearl, before we, I mean, this whole thing is written so well that it's it's worth the whole read. This is consistent with the subculture of celebrity evangelicalism that nurtured him, that gave him a platform, and he now claims to have repudiated, light on intellectual substance, and shamelessly appealing to the emotional institutions and needs of the customer base, the evangelical celebrity world is geared towards marketing the attractive personality as the branded product that will solve the problems of potential customers. It is how Josh Harris, the youthful peddler of purity, made his name and his money, and this is precisely how Josh Harris, the older and wiser former Christian, continues to sell himself to anyone foolish enough to buy his quote unquote, making your peace with your story. Don't be taken in don't be shocked, don't be caught off guard, don't be discouraged. The Lord still has 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. God bless us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.